welcome, um, welcome to this uh, web series on the decolonization of aid. We are very happy with uh, two prominent uh, speakers, Arati Krishman, who is a strategic uh, foresight advisor at the UNDP, and uh, Hugo Slim, who is a senior research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict of the Oxford University. Uh, both speakers will introduce, uh, will, ref will share with us their reflection on ethics and mo morality of international aid and decolonization for 10 minutes. Uh, without further ado, let me start with my uh, first uh, speaker, Arati Krishman. I hope I pronounced your name uh, right. Uh, her work focuses on designing uh, anticipatory institutions with a special focus on strategic foresight and system thinking. Uh, she's an affiliate at the Beckman Klein Center for International Security at Harvard University and also a technology and human rights fellow at the Howard Carr Center for Technology and Human Rights. Her work uh, research focuses on foresight and the colonial tech ethics in humanitarian tech uh, governance. Uh, Arati, we are very happy to have you. Uh, this was a very brief introduction of your work. Uh, please uh, uh, share with us, uh, uh, bring, bring us through the journey of your ethical reflections. Great, thank you so much, Kiza. Uh, and thank you, Peter, Anne-Marie, Hugo. It's a thrill and a privilege to be here with you. Um, of course, we've crossed, uh, crossed paths um, in, in previous careers as well. Um, so my name is Arati Krishnan. Um, I'm, um, I research uh, at Harvard on the intersection between uh, the coloniality of tech systems uh, and in humanitarian aid and what does that mean for how we think about ethics and governance structures. I've been reflecting a lot, um, I've worked in the humanitarian sector for, for oh, almost 20 years now uh, in various different roles. Um, and. I guess where I land in, in the conversation of decoloniality, and, and that's sort of the phrase that I use, is there are three things that really strike me in this conversation. And I don't want to repeat stuff that was uh, talked about in the previous sessions. Tamam, in particular, whom I greatly admire, does, does hit the nail on the head when he talks about paternalism. But I want to talk about what does the fundamentals of coloniality mean within this aid system? And it becomes, yes, I mean, yes, there's donor issues, there's funding issues, but there is a fundamental personal uh, lens to this. And how we see this translate in the aid system is that we see solutions being proffered in the name of and for the good of perceived people uh, that are at different stages of vulnerability or at different stages of need, yet those people themselves, people that look like me, that come from the parts of the world that I come from, are not recognized as full and legitimate participants in producing those solutions. Colonialism was proffered as ideas of modernity without necessarily thinking about those impacts of modernity, whether that was actually wanted or needed. One of my favorite researchers at Harvard is a gentleman called Sabelo Malambi. And Sabelo, you know, proffers this provocation where he says, what are the, what is the use or what is the good of human rights frameworks when we don't recognize the humanity in others? So, one of the key principles for me when I think about my journey in this space is the idea of positionality. What is the gaze that we put on the world when we make the decisions we make 
um, and the choices that we make? And do we recognize the humanity of others in that? Now, col colonialism, the argument of decolonization is often uh, packaged as a diversity. You know, it, it sort of gets folded up as diversity and inclusion, more people around the table. Um, it's often a binary argument between white and people of color. But I would argue that um, aspects of positionality also influence that. I'm a person of color. I was born in Malaysia. I grew up in Australia. I now live in New York. I have a certain amount of privilege. The gaze that I have of the world and the position that I hold influences um, the decisions that I make. I cannot be preferred to speak on behalf of others that may look like me or come from the parts of the world that I come from. And these are arguments we don't normally have. The argument of coloniality isn't just between race, it's about caste, it's about class, and these are also elements of the argument we don't have. The second point I want to say here is around where do ethics fall into this? And the idea of the principles of ethics I fundamentally believe in. I'm a, I, you know, there's a lot of what my research is focused on. But one of the things that I am, um, I guess, unlearning through this process is this idea of whose ethics, for what purpose, who does these ethics benefit? Do ethical, uh, do, do Euro ethic, ethical philosophies actually link to how different communities? Uh, different community values and how they see themselves. And I want to draw on ideas of uh, Ubuntu philosophy, for example. You know, ethical frameworks traditionally are European in origin. They, they, they speak about uh, um, being, uh, being logical, being relational. Um, Ubuntu philosophy often uh, draws on this idea that I am a person through other persons. I am because we are. And it, it forces us to earn our personhood through how we treat others. How do ethical philosophies that we use in humanitarian aid draw on these types of frameworks or different types of philosophic, philosophical cultural frameworks that might help expand our worldview of what is right or what is wrong and who gets to determine that? It's those decision-making structures. And I guess the last part I want to talk about here is, you know, we've often drawn on the fundamental principles. I've, I've worked in the, in the Red Cross Red Crescent for many years, as, as has Hugo. We've drawn on the Geneva Conventions for a very long time as the fundamental principles that govern the, the work we do. And the provocation I want to put out here is these principles, these conventions, human rights frameworks were designed at a specific point in time with a specific group of people that, that sat behind its, um, its, its, its writing, its thinking. It's not that it is wrong. The question I want to ask is, is it still fit for purpose for the complexities we are facing? And it's not about saying they have to be diminished, but how might we evolve? How might we amplify? How might we um, elevate our current conventions and frameworks to be more, not just inclusive, but to be firmly grounded in aspects of rights, justice, um, and action orientation? So that we're not imposing one, using Tamam's words, one paternalistic idea of how the world should be onto different parts of the world.
So those are the three things that I, I really think about. Our positionality in the conversation around colonialism, decolonialism, whose ethics matter and who gets to determine those ethics and how do we actually embrace, and this is, this is a key part of my practice and my research, a pluriversal approach to this, to existing in, in, in a multiverse, so to speak, which is that multiple truths can be true at the same time. And, and whose ethics do we prioritize? And finally, the, the frameworks and principles that we have in place, are they, are they fit enough for the future that we're going into? And how might we elevate it? How might we elevate conversations about neutrality? How might we elevate conversations about universality that not just are looking forward, but are built from what we've learned in the past? I'm gonna end with this one quote. Um, that, that has stuck with me for a very long time. Um, Anasuya Sengupta, who is one of the co-founders of an organization called Whose Knowledge, and what they do is to democratize the internet's language so that it is accessible to everybody. It's not just in English. And on a panel discussion with uh, Anasuya many months ago, Anasuya put forward this provocation that you know, very often when we think about the future, when we think about ideas of what could happen, um, when the idea of Wakanda is often held up as, 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 a, as a great beacon of hope, Anasuya's argument is what is powerful about the idea of Wakanda is not about its future possibility, but it's about the past possibilities of what could have happened if colonialism wasn't, wasn't, didn't happen. What, what could have been in place if, the, if, if you know, the world didn't plunder, didn't colonize, didn't extract in the name of one part of the world for the sake of the other, and didn't impose one idea of progress onto the world. And that was really powerful. I'll stop there. Um, I hope these are good, good discussion points to, to get us started um, and really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you, thank you very much. I hope uh, that uh, question, the last question, also go to the list of uh, the audience. How would the world look like? And at the same time, maybe in a more active form, I hope that this conversation help us uh, reshape uh, our world structures and work toward a more pluralistic system. So I'm, a lot to digest. I'm looking forward to the exchange. Uh, this is the time, I think, to introduce the next speaker. Uh, Dr. Hugo Slim, who is Senior Fellow at the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict. He's uh, specialized in ethics, war and humanitarian aid. Uh, his career, um, in his career, has combined academia, frontline humanitarian operations and policy making. He has uh, published over 30 uh, referral journal papers in, and 17 book chapters in ethics, humanitarianism and war studies. In uh, his last book, Humanitarian Ethics, A Guide to Morality and Aid in War and Disaster, published in 2015, he thinks through the applied ethics of humanitarian action. And again, this is a very short uh, summary. Uh, Dr. Hugo Slim, welcome. Please uh, inspire us. Isa, thank you very much. And um, it's a great pleasure to follow Arati and to share this platform with her. Um, I want to talk in, in three parts really as well. I want to talk a bit about my background, my colonial background, my imperial background. I want to talk about my views succinctly on the, on the rights and wrongs of the current system. And so talk about self-determination as a right. 
And I want to try and suggest some um, sort of ethical steps we might take as we decolonize. Um, first, I was asked by Peter to bring some photos, so we'd better put them up. So I've got two photos which are meant to sort of illustrate my theme a little, if Rene can put them up. And the first one, and I just leave you to think about, the first one is 1902 in London, and that is in the middle, Joseph Chamberlain, the colonial secretary of Great Britain, and gathered around him at the Imperial Conference in London in 1902 are the prime ministers of all the white settler colonies like Australia, where um, Arati partly grew up and New Zealand and other places, and the secretaries of the colonies and war, and they were discussing how to run the world. And then the next picture is over 100 years later, and that is the meeting and the group photo of the International Interagency Standing Committee principles in Geneva in 2019. And in a sense, I always think that that group comes together also as the leaders of the world to discuss how the West should run the aid world and, in a sense, the challenge that we face of colonization. It's a much more diverse group. It has slightly different intentions, but there does seem to be the resonance there that we're partly discussing. So Rene, thank you for those two photos, 1902 colonialism and today's humanitarian colonialism, perhaps. I speak today really as part of the older generation of humanitarians, and I also speak very specifically as a white British humanitarian raised in a colonial tradition. So I'm going to start with my background a bit, and I started as a humanitarian worker in 1983. And I come from an imperial colonial family. So just to give you a glimpse, one set of my grandparents lived their lives in India, in the Indian army. And my father was born in Quetta in Pakistan and grew up there until he was 18, 19. On the other side, my other grandparents uh, lived their lives in the Middle East as colonialists in the Middle East, but commercial ones. So running supermarkets and shops across the Middle East. And my mother was born in Nazareth um, in Palestine and lived a lot of her life out in the Middle East as well. I had one great uncle who spent 35 years in Uganda as in the colonial service and eventually became deputy governor of Uganda. And I had another great uncle who was sent in disgrace to Malaysia, actually, Irati, um, to be a rubber planter because he fell in love with a divorced woman in Edinburgh, which was unacceptable. So that's my sort of family background, and that's um, the sort of culture I grew up in, a culture of empire. And I think it's interesting to remember that empire throughout human history has been the dominant political organization across the world at all times, really. We've had Chinese empire, Persian empire, Greek, Roman, Muslim, Mongol, Ottoman, Russian, Habsburg, and American. But probably there is something especially unpleasant about these short overseas white settler empires. And perhaps because the racism was so distinct in those empires, the white, brown, black racism, which you didn't get so much in the land empires, Ottomans and, and others. The colonization of the mind was so intense in those relationships, as Arati has, has pointed out, in those white settler empires. 
The cultural difference was huge because these imperialists crossed seas, whereas the land empires were often with their neighbors and of great cultural similarity very often. And of course, the slavery was on industrial scale in those white settler empires. So in 1983, I became a humanitarian in a British imperial tradition. It was considered a strange job that I should join Save the Children, but an understandable job because people had always crossed the seas and tried to run other countries. When I joined Save the Children in 1983, the director general was the former permanent secretary of the colonial service. And three of the four directors of Save the Children were ex-military people who'd fought in the decolonization wars for Britain. But interestingly, they were, if you like, enlightened decolonizers. And their mission was to try and enable independence. And in, the, in that process, I, you know, and in the years afterwards, I became, I suppose, a bit more radical in my view. I want to now move from that because in a sense, that's the tradition I come out of. And I say that and I share that with you because it is, I think, and Arati talked about the importance of taking this issue personally, it is a personal manifestation of the wider history of Western humanitarianism, that a lot of us shared that mindset, came from that root. In the last 10 years, I have recognized and felt imperialism and colonialism in Western humanitarianism to a degree I've not known it before, even at that, in that post-imperial period. I think the scale of the footprint of Western humanitarianism in certain countries now is so enormous. I think that ideology that Arati talked about, this imposition of this sort of specific set of principles and ideology um, is so much more intense than it ever was in the 80s and 90s when I started. And this is why I've become very critical of it. And quite frankly, humanitarian imperialism is wrong. And much greater humanitarian self-determination is right. So for me, the core point, the core ethical issue here is that a people and a nation's right to organize and run their own society. And this is expressed in the human rights covenants, of course, from the 1960s, that every people and every nation should freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development. And I think that commitment to self-determination sets us on a road to the kind of pluriverse that um, Arati is talking about. So people have a right to shape and lead their own humanitarian institutions and organizations. But this right also comes with duties. And of course, if we're talking about humanity and protecting and respecting others, anyone who runs a humanitarian organization has a duty to create effective and impartial organizations. So humanitarian self-determination must still determine itself as humane and humanitarian. And the money they receive is for humanitarian results. And so self-determination cannot self-determine as inhuman, partial, and corrupt forms of humanitarian organizations. So there is an ethical line, there's an absolute right to self-determination, but there's also a really important obligation to self-determine 
as a humanitarian organization. And it's interesting thinking of Afghanistan today, the Taliban are going to self-determine Afghanistan now. And it'll be the acid test if they can self-determine Islamist humanitarian organizations, because I, I have no doubt they will gradually over the next year or so squeeze out the NGOs who are feeling rather triumphant to the moment because they've got lots of photos of meeting Taliban leaders, but I think they'll be squeezed out or squeezed into a different shape. And there are duties for international organizations as well. First of all, to show solidarity and support for self-determination. That is the primary duty of an international organization, not to subjugate or dominate a national humanitarian organization or a local one, but to enable it and grow it. So finally, what is ethical decolonization? And I also agree that you can tell I'm not a revolutionary kind of person in that year zero way. So I don't think a revolutionary year zero, total wiping away of internationalism, kicking everybody out, starting again, form of decolonization will be right. I think that will be wrong because it will be too destructive and create more suffering. So we need to have a pathway somehow of a handover, a transition to conserve what is good and change what is bad. And this has to be a real and careful change in power. And I was thinking of seven principles uh, to guide it. And you know, these are just me thinking, and of course they're Western logical thinking that Arati will, can rightly challenge. But my first principle of any transition is it must be fast change. It has to be fast for two reasons. To remedy injustice, which is happening all the time by a colonial system, and to act prudently now to create the national organizations we need for the climate crisis. Because international organizations and colonial humanitarianism will not meet the climate crisis challenge. The second principle one must be one of mutual care. I think growing new organizations, creating and self-determining national organizations will be very hard. And so will shrinking international ones. So there has to be an understanding and ethics of mutual care where both parties agree that what they're doing is difficult and they have to have compassion in a sense for one another, one that's growing, one that's shrinking. <clears throat> the third principle is to preserve what works well. Some forms of internationalism, some forms of hybrid organizations are good, they're acceptable, they have people's consent and they should be preserved if they're working and not ideologically demolished because they have an international element. The fourth principle I think is um, Results matter, but mistakes are expected. So self-determination must deliver humanitarian results, but it too will not be perfect. So it too will make mistakes like colonial international agencies make mistakes. <clears throat> and the fifth thought I had is this important point that all of you have spoken about already, a change of mind. And I think it's got to be a rule that every single humanitarian works on changing their mindsets. And this is particularly important about, you know, for people who experience a sort of inferiority complex because of the imperialism and the colonialism, and people who enjoy a superiority complex, both those have to change and we have to find a mindset of equality um, as humanitarians. 
And we have to work towards the sixth principle, which must be humanitarian cooperation. Whatever international and national does must be based on people's needs, not institutional power play. And then the final thing, the final rule of thumb, I think, is that there must remain a right to subvert and resist. Because if self-determination determines into an inhumane form of misgovernance and bad humanitarian uh, structures, there must be a right to resist those and subvert those national structures when they're wrong. And equally, if internationalism consistently refuses to change, there is a right to subvert it and resist it much more forcefully, in my view, and, and, not, uh, and realize that a gentle transition will not work. So I'll leave it there and hope there's something there to talk about. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've uh, been taking a note and I hope uh, that people who are following us also took those notes on the seven principles and that we can discuss them further. Uh, I do realize that Arati also had an image, uh, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Maybe you could use, uh, you could guide us through your visuals and how it's related to your uh, message on, uh, on ethics. Decolonization. Wonderful. Thank you, Kisa. Thank you, Hugo. Yes, my image is actually an image of a South American uh, emerging philosophy called Buen Vivir. It's informed a lot of my thinking and my research uh, in, in terms of, of unsettling the coloniality of, of, of the work that I do. So Buen Vivir, it's a concept and a lived practice under, that's currently under construction. It's not, a, it's not finite, which is what I love about it. It's emergent. It is the opposite of the approach that we normally take, which puts a dollar figure um, on national well-being by utilizing a range of indicators to measure it, the, the way we normally do now in terms of you know, what considers growth and progress. Um, it, it's the, what's interesting about Buen Vivir is it draws not on the well-being of an individual, which one would argue when we prioritize the well-being of, in, of, in, of individuality, it results in inequity. Um, but rather it talks about uh, the well-being of the individual within the community in relation to specific uh, cultural, natural environments. It is fundamentally a decolonial stance and it draws on new ethics that balances quality of life, uh, the democratization of the state, and the concern and its link with biocentric ideals. Um, so it's this idea of the link between planet, between people um, that I really like, and it informs a lot of, of it's, influ it's influ influenced and it will, it has, um, I guess, inspired my thinking about what new forms of, of you know, what the next could be um, um, in, in my world. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>